Thank you for tuning in to Jason DeMars Live. Every Tuesday and Friday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time, I teach on various biblical topics. Get in contact with me at jasondemars.com. Let me know what topics you would like me to cover in future videos. I have free books and tracks available for you to order and shipping is free as well. Make sure to subscribe and click the little bell to get notified when I post a new video. Good morning, everyone. God bless you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I'm getting back. I just got back uh, on late Tuesday from the trip to Fresno, California. And so Tuesday morning I had uh, played a recording. And so we're going to get back directly on our topic on foundations right now. Um, before I do that, um, I just want to mention to everyone, uh, the church I attend in Beaufort, South Carolina, Bethel Tabernacle, uh, we are hosting uh, a youth camp in October. It's going to be October 28th through 31st in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina at Lookup Lodge in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. So it's going to be an absolutely incredible camp. Um, tons of activities for the youth. Um, there'll be two services a day. Uh, so Friday and Saturday will be two services as well as uh, just like I said, a ton of activities, kayaking, uh, paddle boats, fishing. There's a huge swing that goes way up off the ground and swings them over the lake. Um, there's the potential. They haven't done it up to now because of COVID, but by then there's a potential that there'll be paintball. Um, there is uh, a ba basketball courts, pickleball, soccer, um, there's areas for, for the kids to sit and have fellowship, campfires in the evening where we'll have campfire services. And if you want to register, you can go to Bethel-Tab.com. I'll include the link um, in the comments section of um, this video. If you want to take a look and register your youth, it's 13 and up. And it is one where uh, parents are basically dropping your kids off and picking them up. Um, there's also the option if you're coming from far away that you could have get a ticket for your children and have them fly to the Greenville Spartanburg International Airport and we let us know their flight information and we will have someone come and pick them up and bring them to the camp and bring them back to the airport. If you have any questions about that, let me know. Uh, with that said, let's get into our topic. We've been looking at supposed Bible contradictions and answering the charges 
of Bible contradictions. When we're talking about foundations, I think it's, it's almost impossible to get any more uh, foundational than uh, belief that the Bible is inerrant and inspired. I guess the foundational belief beyond that would be a belief that there is a God, that there is a God and that God speaks and reveals himself. And so we go from there. God has revealed himself through a book. He's given us a book, and that book is to be our final authority. All teachings, all supernatural occurrences, all uh, the way that we live our life is to be checked by and verified through the Bible. All doctrine must be based upon the Bible. Uh, God can do things, if he wants to, outside of the Bible. But if you'll just be faithful to and fulfill what the Bible says, that is all that we have need of. But the Bible is inerrant. It means that there's no errors in it. There's no mistakes in it. And it's inspired. It means that it was breathed out by God. All right. So, here is one of those supposed contradictions. It is a prophecy that's spoken about in Matthew 27. And the charge is Matthew falsely attributed a prophecy that was given by Zechariah to Jeremiah. So let's look at the verse. Matthew 27, 9 and 10. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So this quote about the thirty pieces of silver is very similar to the prophecy of Zechariah, and therefore everyone assumes Matthew made a mistake. He's referring to Zechariah's prophecy, not to Jeremiah. So if that's, if that's the case, then, we, then the scripture is not inerrant. So it can't be the case. So how do we explain this? How do, the, how, do we, how do we look at this? Now, there is a well-established formula that in uh, the rabbinical period, so the period that Matthew is writing, that a collection of books in the Bible is referred to to by the name of the first book in that collection. So Jesus used that similar uh, formula when he referred to the writing sections of the Old Testament as Psalms, even though what he was saying was included in the Proverbs. So let's look at this. The first book listed in the collection of the prophets in the 
Jewish Bible, the Jewish Tanakh, not the Christian Bible, but the Jewish Tanakh, is Jeremiah, not Isaiah. Therefore, if you're quoting from the prophets, you, would, you could cite Jeremiah conceivably as though it was an actual quotation from Zechariah. So let's look at the verse in Zechariah. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. And Matthew says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was pierced, whom they of the children of Israel pierced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Okay, so those are the two verses they're referring to. So one quote says one quote says they weighed out the wages. The other says and they took. One says throw it to the potter, which was already fulfilled Matthew twenty seven five. So the other one does not mention that it was a potter's field. One says it was for a potter. The other one says it was for the potter's field. The point being, this is not a direct quote from the book of Zechariah. You can't say it was a quote misattributed to Zechariah since Zechariah didn't say what Matthew is saying. So perhaps Matthew speaking by the Holy Spirit is quoting a spoken prophecy by Jeremiah. It, it doesn't say thus was fulfilled what was written by Jeremiah the prophet. It says thus was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. So this could be a spoken prophecy that came down and was developed into what Zechariah recorded. So the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to report a prophecy of Jeremiah just as Jude was inspired to include previously unwritten information about Michael in his book inspiration of the scripture. Amen. So, just want to greet those who are on. If you're listening in, send your greetings. Brother Kenny and Sister Janelle, God bless you. Sister Sarah from Edmonton, God bless you. Uh, Brother Louis, God bless you. Uh, Linsley, God bless you. Sister Chantel, God bless you also. Thanks to each one of you listening in. Uh, next, Topic is First uh, Samuel three three says, and ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. So people say this is a contradiction. The temple was not built until much later. Not only that, but you can't sleep in the holy of holies, where the ark of the Lord is. So, how does this work? The Hebrew word that is translated as from temp translated as temple is the word hekal. It is used of the temple, but it can also mean a large building or edifice. This 
this word hekal can also speak of the tabernacle. It has been spoken of the tabernacle before. So there really, there's not a mistranslation here. It's a mis or a a, a mistranslation or even a contradiction. It is a misunderstanding. It's not the temple that's being spoken of. It's the tabernacle. And it's not saying that Samuel was sleeping in the Holy of Holies. He was sleeping in the tabernacle area. And he was... The, and of course, that is trying to signify this. Samuel was laid down to sleep in the tabernacle area in the area near the tabernacle, right? This is where the Ark of God was. So ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the Ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. All right. It's not a contradiction. Simply people's misunderstanding of the verse. So then, there's uh, in 1 Kings 7.23, people will say, well, that's a contradiction because pi equals 3.14159265, etc. So, 1 Kings 7.23 has to be a contradiction because it says, now he made the sea, so it's a circle, the sea, of cast metal, Ten cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was five cubits and thirty cubits in, di- in circumference. The sea was where they had water and washings were made there at the temple complex, tabernacle complex. So, how can it be thirty cubits in circumference if it's talking about pi? So, this is a common thing. Ten cubits was a measurement, of course. We understand that. Thirty cubits is a measurement. So how can it be thirty cubits if it's a circle? It has to be 3.14, etc. Well, it's very, very common when talking about measurements to uh, approximate them, right? Approximately. So if it's 10, perhaps they're saying it's 9.8, 9.5, something like that, which then would be 29 point something, which would lead to 30. So it's not a contradiction or a mistake. Maybe at the very best, someone, a, a critic of the Bible, could say the Bible is imprecise. But the fact is, it's a normal thing to speak in approximations when it comes to this. Right? So, there's there's multiple explanations. It's an approximation. Also, it could be speaking of um, one portion as speaking... I mean, there's going to be a... So, when you're going around this circle of this uh, place that's holding water, there's going to be a brim to it around around it. So the inside could be a certain circumference and the outside another circumference, in which case this wouldn't be a mistake or an error. It would be 
perfectly accurate. All right. Let's look at the Old Testament. Some interesting things regarding the genealogies. So, Matthew. Matthew says, From Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So, when we look at that, it looks like a contradiction because when he lists off from Abraham to David, it's 12. And then when he lifts off from David to the deportation, it's 13. And then when he lifts from the lists from the deportation to Joseph, it's 13. So what's going on here? Why, does, why is Matthew saying it's 14? Well, simple. Matthew is being extremely precise here. He says from Abraham to David is 14. But then when he lists them, he doesn't list. He lists in between. So missing in that number is Abraham and David. So you have 12 plus Abraham, 13, plus David, 14. Next he says from David to the de deportation. He doesn't say from David to Jeconiah. But he says, from David to the deportation. And then he lists 13. So assumed in that number is David again, which is 14. Then he goes from the deportation. He doesn't say Jeconiah, but he sa says from the deportation unto Christ, which is including Jeconiah in that, 14. All right? So he's actually saying something and he's being extremely precise in a way that is different than uh, how we would be precise in our day and age. So the t the, this, this division is not, he's not trying to list from, this, from Adam to all the way to Christ. He's listing sections. So there's actually multiple sections and places that are missing, but with his precise language, he's, he's dividing times from, from Abraham to David, David to deportation, deportation to the Messiah. These are all significant time periods in the Jewish understanding and approach to things. And so Matt... Matthew is being extremely precise, but perhaps in a, in a way, looking at it in a way, very Jewish way, not in a very American or Western way. All right. Next one is, people say Jesus was inaccurate when he said the mustard seed was the least of all seeds because there is seeds smaller than that which I think is specifically uh, the orchid seed is smaller than the mustard seed. So people say, well, it's a contradiction. Brother, um, Jesus 
contradicted himself. So let's read the, read the verse and let's talk about it. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The key right there is greater than the herbs. So he is talking, he is not talking about every single seed that exists, but he's talking about the garden herb group, the lakana. And so when he says greater than all the seeds, he doesn't mean every seed that exists, he means the seeds of the herbs, the classification of herbs. So garden herbs, this is the smallest seed of the garden herbs, and yet it grows and becomes a tree, and it's larger than the rest. I think that is quite clear. It's not try, he's not trying to make an all in He doesn't say the mustard seed is smaller than the orchid seed. He doesn't say that. He says it's all, smaller than all the seeds, and then he goes on and says is greater than the herbs. So he's being precise about the classification of herbs, not necessarily classification of all seeds. Uh, another contradiction people bring up say, why did Jesus not allow the adulteress to be stoned, which under the Old Testament, adultery would be punishable by stoning. So, Leviticus 20, verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So then, let's read that verse. That's John 8, 3 through 11. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said, said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. <sighs> Excuse me. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? No one has condemned you. Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The Bible also says that it takes two, wit two or three witnesses to a crime to put someone to death. One witness shall not rise up against a man. This is Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness shall not rise up against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. So the woman is brought to Jesus by the religious leaders 
for the purpose of trapping him in a difficult situation. So there's many witnesses in front of him saying this woman was put to death. However, we read in Deuteronomy, the adulterer and the adulteress will be put to death, not just the adulteress. Only the woman was brought before the Jesus, not the man. So this, they were not, in, they were not interested in justice, but in accusing the woman. And Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he says that after, after writing in the ground. Some people say, well, he was writing the Ten Commandments in the ground. Others say, well, he was writing names of women that those men had committed adultery with or, were, or had as mistresses. Whatever it might be, it caused them to be convicted in, his, in their hearts and walk away. And he says, where are, your, where are the witnesses? They left. What was the purpose of getting, Jesus was getting rid of the witnesses. Why? Because it was not a matter of justice. It was a matter of trapping him. This woman was caught in the middle. Though she was a sinner, he calls her to repentance doesn't condemn her and sends her on her way. At the end, there was no witnesses at all to excuse her. So Jesus doesn't violate the Mosaic law at all. He actually is clearly uh, following it more strictly and clearly than the rest of the Jewish leaders. Next one is, the Bible uh, clearly states there are sons of God in the Old Testament. It refers to sons, the sons of God in uh, Genesis 6. It refers to sons of God, believers as sons of God. And so why does it say that Jesus is the only begotten son of God? Or some translations say the only son of God. So I want to point out this. Absolutely. Adam is referred to as the Son of God. Believers are referred to as sons of God, children of God. But Jesus is called the only begotten Son um, and God's own Son. So, why the difference? Number one is only begotten, only um, refers to can refer to being unique so you could say the monogenao is the word used in in greek monogenao it means uniquely it means he's unique the uniquely begotten son of god and that's absolutely true adam was created from the dust yes we are born again by the spirit of god that's different Jesus came by a virgin birth apart from human genetics. God created those human genetics in the womb of a virgin. Therefore, in that sense, he is uniquely begotten Son of God because his begetting was unique. And then he himself was unique in that he was the very Im- express image of God. 
Now, Adam and Eve were said to be the image in, made in the image and likeness of God. Jesus, though, is said to be the exact imprint of God's nature. And so, he, and he is referred to as the blood of God. So he's the blood of God, the exact imprint of God, and his body was the body that God was to fully indwell and fully manifest himself through. So it's definitely not at all a contradiction. Next uh, is in three of the Gospels, Jesus sends his disciples out. In Matthew, he says, uh, Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your money, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. Then in Mark, Mark he says, Take nothing for the journey except a staff. Then in Luke, he says, Don't take staffs. Matthew and Mark, he says, don't take, a st don't take staffs. In Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke, he says, don't take a staff. Mark says, take a staff. So take nothing for your journey but a staff. In, in Matthew, he says, provide no staffs. In Luke, he says, take not staffs. So what is, what is being said here? Jesus is saying, don't go out and get other things for your journey. Don't make elaborate preparations for your journey. Just go. Take what you have and go. So, in Matthew he says, uh, don't bring gold or silver in your money belts. Don't take a bag. Don't take two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. What is he trying to say? He's saying, he's not telling them to go without shoes or go without clothes. He's telling them, just go with what you have. Go with the sandals that are on your feet, the tunics that you're wearing, the staff that you have, and go. Just go. God will provide the rest. Don't, don't bring a change of clothes. Don't bring a change of sandals. Just go. In, in, in Mark, he says, Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Okay, so why is Mark saying it differently? The point is, he, he doesn't say take. He doesn't use the word take, right? So he's simply saying, Go with what you have. Don't provide something new and just go. Luke says, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bags, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. So he's taking the same sense as Mark is. Um, don't take anything extra. Just go. Just go. All right. Let me see where we're at time-wise. We're at about 30 minutes. And I'm going to just 
go with one more talking about the two different genealogies in Matthew and Luke. So the two genealogies do not line up. We already talked about Matthew, and he was talking about periods of time. He wasn't being precise about every single one. Not only that, but Matthew never uses the word the son of. He simply says this person, of this person, of this person, of this person, of this person. In other words, it could be a grandfather, it could be a second generation. He's not being um, totally precise in that way. He's trying to say 14 from this one, 14 from this one, 14 from this one. He's trying to establish um, those periods of time and who Christ came from. Luke is being precise, accurate, the way we think of being precise and accurate, which is listing all of them from um, all the way back to Adam. All right? So then next is why are, why is Matthew li- list a different father for Joseph than Luke does? So, um, using uh, using genealogy, you would you would say, "Oh my goodness, it's totally inaccurate." But um, Matthew is tracing the line through Joseph's family. Luke is tracing it through Mary. So Luke is. Matthew says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, speaking of the virgin birth. Luke is more obvious, saying, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph. So one is tra- Matthew's tracing through Joseph's lineage, lineage. Luke is tracing through Mary's lineage. Now, why would Joseph then be listed as in the genetics and not Mary? That's because it's very common in, those, in that time. If Mary's family, uh, there's no, if there's no brothers in Mary's family, you would then take that lineage and list it through the male of the oldest daughter. So you go through the male, the the husband of the oldest daughter. So in that case, Joseph takes over for for Mary in the lineage. So it's Mary's lineage attributed to Joseph onto Christ. And so they're trying to show the lineage through Mary's line. The other one is through Joseph's Line. It's not a contradiction, just looking at two different lines. So then the other one is, well, why does, why do we have uh, Canaan listed twice in Luke's genealogy? Well, if we look at it close, it's, it's 
something that was added afterwards. If you look at the most ancient Greek copies of Luke, it does not refer to the second Canaan there because it doesn't refer to it in any of the Old Testament at all, the second Canaan. So the second Canaan gets added in in Luke somehow got added in at a later date. It wasn't in the original writings and the earliest Greek manuscripts. All right, there's a bunch more supposed contradictions to go through. I'm going to continue doing that on uh, next Tuesday. Hopefully we can get through it then. And I want to continue on. We're talking about foundations. I want to talk about sanctification. And I want to talk about... uh, holiness and modesty within talking about that. And then I want to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and then go in a little bit into uh, go into prayer and go into um, some more basics, foundations of Godhead and the doctrine of Christ and go into baptism and some of these different things. So if you have any questions, prayer requests, or testimonies, please let me know. Thank you so much for listening in. May God richly bless you.